Hello, listeners. Welcome to Uptown Audio News. I'm your host, Brandon Mitchell. This is the second episode of a two-part series relating to the Black Lives Matter movement. This week follows a different format as two of our reporters conduct an in-depth discussion on how the Insurrection Act and Mellon voting impacts both the movement and the upcoming election. Here's Jacob Cranville and Audrey Wallace. So I want to start off with talking about the legality behind what Trump is doing with the federal troops in Portland, particularly using them to quell protesters and to kind of disperse uh, assemblies. I think a lot of questions on people's minds is, is this legal and uh, what right does he have to do it? Yeah, I think that we've seen through the Insurrection Act, he has that authority to a certain extent, and that act was specifically made to be up to interpretation. And the differences in interpretation is where we see the real conflict here and the real controversy. But if we're talking about where he can theoretically take it, it's within his bounds. But of course, the fact that the act is up for interpretation means that lots of different Americans have lost of different opinions about how far a president can take that particular piece of doctrine. And, and a lot of people have been hearing about the Insurrection Act lately. But I think talking about the constitutional right versus the ethicality of it, you have to go back and look at its formation as well as some of its past uses. So the precursor to the Insurrection Act was the 1792 Militia Act that would be used in 1794 to stop the Whiskey Rebellion. Uh, And that was when a whole bunch of farmers got together and felt that the whiskey tax was unfair and they refused to pay it and they tarred and feathered any sort of tax collector that came. So George Washington gathered a militia and he went down there and he stopped them. Uh, But the Insurrection Insurrection Act itself would be created in 1807. Thomas Jefferson's former VP Aaron Burr decided that he was going to create a new spinoff nation in the Louisiana Purchase and Thomas Jefferson being the president of the country and the Louisiana Purchase being American soil, he wasn't too much of a fan of this. But he was also a hardcore constitutionalist, which meant that he wasn't going to deploy troops unless the Constitution gave him explicit consent. So he asked Congress to draft up an act, which would later be called the Insurrection Act, and it would be passed in 1807. However, Aaron Burr had already been in custody for 11 days by the time this happened, so it wasn't used until American ships were going against the trade embargo and trading with British merchants, which the U.S. government was untoo happy with, but they refused to back down, and thus it was used. I think the key word here is extenuating circumstances. Obviously, we have the legal doctrine of pose comitatus, It makes it very clear that the founding fathers did not want the leader of America to be using America's forces against its citizens. That is a core belief that America was founded on, considering our history with Britain and the fact that they literally did that exact same thing. And that's what started the American Revolution. So that precedent was set very early on. But when creating a country, you have no idea where it's going to go. And so the Insurrection Act was kind of an insurance policy because 
no one knew what was going to happen in the future or what kind of crazy scenario was going to come up. So they wanted leaders not to be too hindered by, you know, certain laws so that they couldn't do the right thing for their country if they had this extremely unforeseen situation. But I think that you also have the assumption when you create that kind of opening that the person who's running the country is always going to be a good person, a virtuous person, a person who is in constant pursuit of the right thing, fixing things, making things good for the American people. It does get interesting when you talk about the limitations of federal powers, uh, especially when talking about the Insurrection Act, because I really think it provides an almost a microcosmic example of an act that assumes that the person controlling it is inherently virtuous, right? And also, it shows the the power encroachment that is controlled by the executive branch, right? For example, Abraham Lincoln amended the act so he no longer needed governor's consents to invade the Confederacy, because obviously they weren't going to let him in. Without some sort of act for him to, to do anything, he wouldn't be able to. But I think that was the right thing to do at a time, yet it also opens up the possibility for something perhaps just as bad to occur. Every action has an equal and opposite reaction. Right. And continuing along that line, next time the Insurrection Act would really come into play would be during the 1960s civil rights movement. And it was to protect black protesters from angry white mobs, most notably the Little Rock Nine, where troops were deployed to escort children, uh, African-American children, to and from school because angry mobs of white people were trying to attack them, trying to prevent them from coming in, uh, and just all sorts of backlash to this idea. Yet, uh, as we move forward in time, more towards the modern era, we start to see a shift. Uh, the last time the act would be used was in 1992, and it was to stop the riots that happened after the Rodney King beatings, where um, Rodney King was a black man and he was down on the ground and police just continually beat him with batons. And it's a horrific video, and clearly there was some sort of injustice there. But the police officers were uh, acquitted, which led to large riots in all of L.A. So George Bush said, OK, we're going to send federal troops in. And that that really becomes kind of a nuanced topic is like, who do you protect? Do you protect the people who are fighting for civil rights, but destroying property? Or do you protect the shop owners that may have had no part in this, but yet they find that their things are being destroyed. And that could also potentially lead to a lot of criticism. So it leads into the question of what does it mean to quell riots? And can you do it in a way to where people are still allowed to have a voice? Well, I really like how you phrase that question about uh, what does it mean to quell riots? Because I think people right now are very scared and looking for stability, looking for consistency. They didn't no certain people didn't want the world to get even more quote unquote out of control. So 
I understand that people are scared of change and violence and not understanding the world even more. <laughs> and I don't, <laughs> I don't know how I wanted it to relate to the next question, but that's the first thing I think of when I think of the effects of quelling riot. I think that I, I understand where people are coming from who want it to stop, even though I don't necessarily agree with that point of view. I definitely sort of follow along that same line, but I find myself moving more towards sympathy with the rioters. And, and I do mean people who have been destroying property just because when talking about change, I think it, it's important that there is some sort of disruption. Um, notably, uh, John Lewis just passed away and he talked about the idea of good trouble and getting into good trouble. And com that coming from a lawmaker and uh, a civil rights activist, I think that's very interesting that change often doesn't come lawfully and peacefully. I always I always like to start out when I talk about protests that the overwhelming amount of these protests have been very peaceful and been very inspirational. I think the riots are more of a side effect of the desperation and the longing to be heard and to be listened to and to be respected. And I think that it's hard to tell people how to process their very justified anger and their very justified frustration and their very justified, you know, trying to make change. And that was a big change when these protests started happening. Because I think any time before this, if you had a protest and, you know, some looting happened after and some rioting happened after, it would have been absolutely, completely, the public would have been against it. Like, this is the first time, at least from my perspective in my community, that I'm seeing a shift from that. And I'm seeing people really take a minute to ask why that's happening and why things have gotten so bad to the point where that's what people feel like they need to do to be heard. Coming from a place of whiteness, I, I, I think there's only so much that we can say about this. And we really should be listening to the community that's being affected by all of this the most. But what I will say is that when a community feels that they have no voice, that they're, they're not even at the table to have a conversation, really the only way that they're going to get there is by making room for themselves, which often leads to people at the table being uncomfortable. And that sometimes it seems like you can do it peacefully. But uh, I, I want to talk about kind of my hometown in uh, Winston. When the protests initially broke out, the city was very supportive, right? Uh, the mayor showed up. The police asked to be there to escort us. And it was overall a very lawful, peaceful time. Fast forward to now, it comes out that there was a man, uh, Robert Neville, who suffocated on the ground in police custody, and it took them uh, seven minutes after he said his final words to get the handcuffs off, and then another nine minutes to begin uh, CPR. And when this news broke out, when the criticism became directed at the city's own police force, protesting suddenly was no longer a lawful thing that you could do really like 
Uh, I know that uh, 15 people have been arrested just in the past. I want to say it was either yesterday or the day before. And so it's very important to make the distinction between lawful protest, nonviolent protest, and violent protest. Because I don't think there's been a huge amount of distinction between the fact that property damage is not ideal by any stretch of the imagination. But at the same time, it's also a store is not a person. And if somebody broke your window, you may want them arrested. But if you're a reasonable person, I don't think you'd want them shot at, uh, tear gassed, the violence done against protesters that are inherently nonviolent seems ridiculous. Yeah. When you're talking about Winston-Salem and the kind of uh, change of position that happened there, I think we're kind of more weary this time around and we are more aware of potential like chauvinism of political figures. And I think that brings us nicely back to, you know, the effect that Trump hopes for, because the whole sending out troops is much more of a visual than it is actually necessarily trying to do the right thing, because you know, visuals, photo ops, this is an election year. And no matter who you are, no matter what politician you are on what side of the aisle or what level of government you're at, local, state, national, federal, you are looking to put out a message, say who you are, say what you want for the country. And I think that The president knew that he was making a very definitive statement when he decided to set those events into motion. I completely agree. And I think you can really tell by the fact that he's been using the phrase law and order a lot recently. And law and order was really first popularized by Richard Nixon in 1968 which was also a time of racial turmoil. And really the whole hard on crime movement relies on or or has a direct correlation to when racial bias and racial tension increases. Even though the, the phrase inherently like, I like laws and I like having order. But when you see when it's used, when you see uh, who it's used against primarily, you realize that oh, this is a this is a dog whistle term. Yeah. And I just want to say really quickly, going back a little bit to chauvinism, I hate branding politicians as people who are only looking for an angle and are naturally dishonest people. But um, Trump's not a politician. (laughs) (laughs) He is now regardless. That's his occupation (laughs) at this point. Once you hold an office, you're objectively a politician. But but I think that I just I think if there's anything we've learned from this summer, it's that when a government official says something, I think we have to be willing to look deeper than face value at what they're saying and ask ourselves, what does this person have to gain from taking this position? And what do they have to lose? And just really think deeper as to why they're doing the things they're doing, making the choices that they're making for any politician. Because as much as I want to believe that we live in a virtuous country with government officials who are always altruistic, and I used to really want to push that narrative 
not all politicians are the same. We do live in a we do live in a world where money and power are very, very, very intertwined with politics. So as far as these protests go, the way politicians have responded to them and changed their positions and shown either support or disdain has said a lot on a lot of levels, maybe even not what they were saying at face value. I'd, al- I'd also like to point out that just because politicians are probably going to be finding the path that benefits them the most, that also doesn't make them inherently evil, right? Uh, it's almost a game in that our goal as a community that wants change is to make that change be the path of least resistance for that politician. Uh, in the case of the nonviolent protest, when you break the windows of a shop, right, you have two parties. You have the protesters who are angry and want some sort of reform. And you have the shop owners that are like, my windows are getting broken. Uh, please make this stop. And at that point, personally for me, I believe that the easiest option would be like, listen to the protest demands and decide where to go from there. Like have a conversation, figure out what's going on. What worries me is that Trump, instead of having a conversation, seems to just want to keep things quiet. And he's going to deploy unmarked federal troops and he's going to try everything in his power to just kind of sweep things under the rug and pretend that everything's okay. Historically, this president is used to having more control over the narrative and he has absolutely no control this year of any narrative. Like for sure, this is forces greater than himself. But yeah, I think that's a really great point that politicians are faced with very, very tough decisions. But I do think that the willingness to at least talk about it and face those issues head on is very important because you can't fix anything if your head is in the sand. You can't make anything better if you refuse to acknowledge the hurt and the nuance, the historical, you know, complacency on this issue. There's a whole host of things that you need to consider. But if you don't consider any of them, you can't come up with a single solution, whether it's good or bad. And uh, we've been railing on Trump a lot. Um, I would say justifiably so. But moving on to, say, uh, Nancy Pelosi, I think she provides a great example of when she knelt in that traditional African scarf. It it came off as a little bit gross. Uh, it, it was clearly, clearly a publicity stunt and an appeal to, I would say, white left liberals to like say, like, oh, look, I, I support these people. I'm going to don on this um this traditional garb but at the same time she is actually making an attempt to push reform uh within laws and within acts so i think there's a huge difference between okay you're gonna do this kind of gaudy pr stunt but you're actually gonna work towards making this better too versus just um, PR stunt. And, and it offends me less when you're actually doing stuff behind the scenes as well. 
that being said, I'm not a black person, so I can't really say how offended you should be. If you're more offended, then that's perfectly fair, and that's your opinion. I think that's just another good example of something that's very clearly performative. And, you know, obviously, very clearly, this happens on both sides of the aisle. And, you know, that one was particularly tone deaf. And I was just like, what's the point? (laughs) I am much more interested in people's actions rather than their words or their, you know, sound bites or their visuals. Of course, uh, as as long as it isn't hate speech, obviously. But uh, moving away from politicians for a moment, I, I also wanted to talk about some polls that I found on uh, Forbes and ABC that talked about people's support of deploying federal troops against protesters. Forbes reported that 58% of their participants said that they would support deploying the troops, with most of them being older white conservatives, but they also said that there was not an insignificant amount of left and African-American people who supported it as well. Yet the poll still showed that a majority of participants would want Joe Biden over Trump for the federal election. ABC's poll, I believe, is more interesting because they say that 52% are for and 47% are against federal troop deployments. Yet, when we break it down by ethnicity, 56% of whites were proponents and 73% of blacks were against the use of force. And that really shows that on the face, it looks like our country is split down the middle. But looking at it instead, you see the white part of the country is split, but marginalized ethnicities tend to have a very... Uh, a very uh, somewhat definitive, like I would say 73%, that's a big majority, are against this. And that's that's interesting to me that when you look into the numbers, you have to account for the fact we're almost several different countries mashed into one, to which the problem arises. Uh, one of those versions of our country has significantly more say than the rest, just due to the numbers and the history behind how each group got here. Yeah, (laughs) I think that white people really need to take a second and think about what they want the world to be like, and what they want the world to be like for their kids. You know, white people especially are used to associating the military with safety and associating authority figures in general as security and safety, but that's not always the case. And I think it comes back to what I said about, you know, craving security and safety, even if it's mostly better for you than it is for other people. And I just think we need to take a second and do some critical thinking. I hate that I'm quoting my professor, but, (laughs) um, you know, really taking into account other people's perspectives and other people's stories. And listening and trying to put as much mental gymnastics into understanding the points of view of people that we don't necessarily understand as we do to the things that we have always known to be true. Talking about the military being viewed as a symbol of safety, it almost seems like 
the military as a whole is less on board with this than say the the government is uh, and that's not to say that the military hasn't done some egregious things in all of this but there are several high-ranking officials who say look we don't support this uh especially talking about the banning of the confederate flag goes directly against trump and unfortunately just due by the nature of the military they have to follow these orders but it almost seems like police are more on board than the federal troops are the military has an investment in not being involved in domestic affairs because if the american public thinks that the military is involved in their affairs and not protecting them from outside forces and not protecting them on an international level, then you have a situation where the military is being used for a purpose other than what was originally intended. And, you know, that kind of breaches the social contract that America was founded on that a military should not be used against its own people. It's And it's safe to say that some military personnel will be okay with this because some civilians are okay with this. And that's just kind of the nature of where we're at right now. The optimist in me thinks a majority of the people who sign up to be in the military, they, they sign up to uh, protect their country, right? They don't, that their job is to protect our homeland from outside forces and so when you bring them back in and say suddenly you have to go against the very people that you were told you were going to be protecting, that can lead to a, a very betrayed feeling almost. And I think there's definitely some backlash against the actions that have been taken by the federal government to use the military, which is supposed to be our protectors, against its own people. Moving on to uh, address some potential uh, rebuttals to what we've been saying so far to uh, our own viewpoints. I think that would be a good idea to kind of add to what we're saying. A lot of people would probably say, and I can definitely see where they're coming from, that the property, even if it's not a person, it does have value and it, and it does have a lot of direct and indirect effects on a community when it gets burnt down. And so a lot of people are saying, well, it's counterproductive to burn down your own stores. It's counterproductive to smash in windows of shops nearby. Uh, that'll turn the community against you. And being somebody who's not from the African-American community, being somebody who's very white and has never really been in that situation, all I can say is that I remember there was a video, and we'll find it, and I'll put it in the footnotes. It's a woman a black woman and she's talking about this target or like the store. This is not a part of our community. It's a part of your community. Just because it's on our street does not mean that we get to use it. Right. Whether they can't afford it or whether there's not much in there for them. Like it's just not their store just because there's a physical location in your area doesn't mean that it's a part of your community, so to speak. Destroying property is something that I think the American public is used to being very black and white. And I think the gray area is hard to accept for people. But, you know, if if we were willing to listen to people of color 
when they did peacefully protest because the Black Lives Matter movement has been going on for years and years. And that's just this particular movement, you know, and people have refused to listen. Government officials, white people have refused to listen and to make considerable lasting change. And people are watching the news every night to look at riots. And it does suck that we weren't able to listen to each other and consider each other and come to a solution earlier. And it sucks that things have had to get really desperate in order for people to listen and take a moment and reconsider their privilege and their perspectives and all of these things. And to really take up a lot of investment and their own civic activity. But that's kind of where we're at now. And these anti-riot militias, police uh, troops are not just being used to quell riots. They are being used against peaceful, maybe not lawful, but peaceful protesters. Uh, Lafayette Square comes to mind where there was a group of peaceful protesters and they were tear gassed and basically drowned out of that square just so Trump and his all white council could have a photo op next to the church nearby. I mean, the amount of reading I've done on just really, really brutal responses to protesting, (laughs) the LAPD really comes to mind with that one. Because, you know, I've heard firsthand accounts of people who are like locked in random like police vehicles for hours and people are being deprived of their human rights. But we're not seeing that on a large scale because, you know, the media is not getting into every nook and cranny of this. This is a national thing. And I think that sometimes we forget the scale. I am able to walk around and not see this stuff on the news, but it's still going on, you know, like. The only reason I heard about Portland again was because federal troops were deployed, but they were protesting all this time. They never stopped. Exactly. And this is not just a 2020 thing. This is these protests, these sentiments have been around for a very long amount of time. Portland in particular, Oregon was initially founded as a very whites only state and Portland kind of became this anomaly where it's a very left, very progressive and inclusive city. But all of those people who were white nationalist, white supremacist, or just didn't like black people are still there. And it's become this dichotomy and that you see that all throughout the nation. George Floyd's death didn't change any of this. It didn't bring anything new to the table. What it did was it provided a wake up call to people that this never stopped. Racism is not over. There's still a lot of violence done against marginalized black people. What I take away from all this, and everybody's going to take away something that's different, is that we can't rely on our government to be inherently virtuous. For every for everything that we create with good intentions, somebody without good intentions could probably spin into something that hurts human rights, something that hurts civil rights or hurts the ideals of this country. And that's just the nature of the way that I think civilization works. So it really comes down to us 
and pressuring not only our federal government, I know we've talked a lot about Trump's actions today, but also talking to local officials as well and having a more direct effect on what they're thinking. Because at the end of the day, Trump did not have a hand in Winston's actions. It was local officials. It was a local decision. And so we as a community have to pressure them. And we also have to notice our marginalized communities in our own hometowns because they've been here for a while and we need to listen to them. Providing them with an actual place to speak about their injustices is very important. I completely agree. And I really struggled with this segment because I I thought it was very cut and dry legal doctrine, but it's actually in the context that we're talking about it. It's very opinionated and it is it has objectively, whether you think that's right or not, become very politicized. And so talking about this has been a struggle, but especially, especially since we don't have the diversity of perspectives for this segment that we would have hoped to have. And we're working on fixing that. I mean, this podcast is still in its infancy. We put out exactly one episode before, but I just wanted to say, and this is a little off topic, but I think it's important. People of color are talking, they are sharing their experiences and their perspectives. And especially, you know, since this podcast is primarily catering to students at UNCC, these anonymous Instagram accounts that have popped up talking about you know, racism within the confines of, you know, certain white dominant colleges, people are talking, their perspectives are there. You can read them and I encourage you to read them because the the diversity is there. The perspectives are there. We just need to reach out and include them and listen to them. So yeah, I completely agree with what you said on that. As far as the legal doctrine of this goes, we do just have to balance how the parameters in which we craft laws to include the possibility that public servants aren't always virtuous and altruistic. And we need to explore ways to amend our laws so that they have safeguards and safety nets, while at the same time not narrowing the applicability of the laws, which is a hard sell. That's a tall order. But I do believe that if we work together, we can come up with something. And to to get on a soapbox. Well, well, I've, I've already been on a soapbox. To get on a slightly higher soapbox, I would say go volunteer somewhere. Um, there's a lot of charity work that needs to be done. And that also provides you a chance to, to really interact with some of the people in your community that are hurting. And by doing that and by meeting actual people that are different and have come from different scenarios you learn that your society is not just who you know. There's a lot of people that live and reside within where we are. Unless you actively go out and try to meet those people, you're never going to have that line of empathy for them. But if you go out and you meet these people, even in an apolitical way, suddenly seeing those same people getting hurt has a different meaning for you than if you just saw them in a purely news or academic sense. Yeah, I think that's a great point, especially since the huge reason that all of this stuff is happening is because of the layers of circumstances in our current situation. I've kind of neglected to acknowledge how big a factor COVID plays in this and how big a factor, you know, people being scared for their health and COVID is disproportionately affecting communities of color because of the inherent racism that runs rampant in America. 
and helping each other out and really taking the time to acknowledge the health disparities there and to try and like lift those communities up because that's a huge reason why this is such a big deal because you know people are dying and it's not just from gun violence it's also in police brutality it's also from the health disparities in this country it's a really good note to end it on uh, a topic about legality and constitutional ethics and ending with a call to action of go volunteer at charity and that covid sucks uh seems like a really good way to finish things off yeah we just been that i think it's time that we transition to the outro uh this is always awkward it's never not awkward <laughs> i'm jacob cranfill and i'm Audrey wallace for uptown audio news Hello again. If you are enjoying this week's episode, consider following us on your preferred streaming platform so that you do not miss future episodes. After that, follow us on Instagram at Uptown Audio to keep up with what we're doing and discover new podcasts. Now back to Jacob Cranfill and Audrey Wallace discussing mail-in voting. So you wanted to cover this topic in particular, and I was just kind of wondering, like, what, what makes this important to you? Oh, well, for me personally, like I've been talking about like voting rights and just the process of getting registered to vote for years, like since I was 18, since I was first eligible to vote, because, you know, I was 16 during the 2016 presidential election. So I had absolutely no say in that election whatsoever. And I think we all know how controversial that election was. So you know, just being able to participate was a big, you know, deal for me, a big honor. And I make videos all the time on, you know, how to vote. And I try to convince my friends all the time to vote. And, you know, it's harder than you would think. You know, you think it, you think that this is something that everyone does, but they don't. People are either too confused by it or, you know, too disillusioned by what's happening in the world to do something that actually does make a difference. And it, it was interesting because while I was kind of looking into this, there's several websites out there that are trying to get, I feel like people like us to try to vote. They're like, here's what you have to do. It's like step-by-step -step instructions of how to do it. And yet people aren't. And so, uh, but especially with the pandemic and I mean, we were storyboarding this idea before the George Floyd protests and now we're Mm -hmm. I would say this is almost even more important now. One of the chants I've been hearing a lot at the protests that are in my home city in Winston are voting in November. Like, I can't remember exactly how it goes, but it's a lot about you need to go vote. You can't just be protesting because that doesn't change unless you vote. Yeah, no, so, absolutely. And especially... Sorry, go ahead. Oh, no. <laughs> I, was, I was just going to say that, you know, young people are the most like underrepresented people in government because they vote the least and they get disillusioned, but they also don't participate in the process of electing representatives. So, so uh, there's a few key statistics here that I want to hit, particularly mm -hmm. about North Carolina. So there's an official website where you can find the North Carolina election data for 2016. Um, I'll have that link down the footnotes. And so the total votes in North Carolina is 4,680,195 people. 
of those votes, only 201,000 people voted by mail. And so that leads to only 4.3% of votes in 2016 in North Carolina were actually mail-in votes. And I think that brings up an important point that while mail-in votes have been around, and for some states, it's actually the common thing. They'll just send out a ballot uh, to registered voters for the primaries. There's a lot of states like ours where it's it's there, but it's not common. And, and I find that interesting because when I was looking online, it was about a quarter of the nation votes by mail-in, but I feel like it's highly disproportionate. And and so one of the first questions I really wanted to tackle here is, is the nation ready to handle the possibility of an all-mail-in vote? Well, I was ple- like, I was actually kind of pleasantly surprised by some of the things I found out. Like, so I linked this uh, election data and research lab done by MIT, and they have this, you know, figure of the United States. And the majority of states have, you know, like, yeah, only three states actually send out absentee ballots to every single eligible voter automatically. And that's obviously the gold standard here. But I mean, the majority of states will allow you to apply for an absentee ballot without any excuse required. Like you don't need to justify why you're getting an absentee ballot. They will mail you one as long as you go through the proper channels. Um, but uh, I, I, I think that the biggest problem here is not necessarily laws in the most part, but the, you know, the logistical transition of it all, you know, the lack of information, you know, transitioning voters who barely knew how to vote in the first place into an entirely new and different system of voting where, you know, not all the laws make it the easiest. And I think that was the biggest concern I came across. So I, and we'll get this in a little bit later, but I feel like the system of going into majority mail-in vote is actually a very smart and progressive move forward to getting higher voter turnouts. The issue is, is that it's a matter of time, right? We have Mm -hmm. the scenario where the general election is coming up in less than a year and you're asking an entire new infrastructure to be built, like especially in like North Carolina, where you go from 200,000 votes to 4.3 million, that's going to require a lot of funds. And I don't know, I think the optimist in me says that if we got, if we made a decision now to really open kind of the floodgates and like really adapt some of these systems that you see in some of these states that have already done it, like uh, like Michigan or California, like if we adapt some of those systems, I think it could go as smoothly about as well as you want. But I mean, we've already seen from Georgia's primaries that just having normal polls is going to be a disaster. Oh, yeah, for sure. And honestly, <laughs> we keep talking about like optimism, but like the pessimistic side of all of this is like, like using the same map that I was referencing before, like, you know, almost all of the states that you know, do require you to justify your app, like why you want an absentee ballot and do require you to jump through the most hoops out of any state in the country. Almost all of them are, you know, very Republican states, very Southern states. Like I used to live in Texas and Missouri and both of those states, you know, require you to really jump through hoops. And a lot of these Southern states have a lot of problems with voter suppression, even before 
you, you know, factor in absentee ballots. And so I think what you're going to see is, you know, a lot of these states, for lack of a better term, like falling on party lines. And, you know, when you have a state that's run by a party that doesn't believe that, you know, absentee ballots are a thing that you should encourage, then you're going to have a lot more, you're going to have a very skewed numbers. You're going to have very low voter turnout and it's just going to end up painting not, not a very, it's not going to paint a very clear picture for, you know, what the people actually want in their representatives. And it's interesting that you bring up the Republican states because there's actually quite a few Republican states, particularly in the Midwest, which actually mm-hmm. do. Uh, Mitt Romney's state, uh, is it Utah? I can't remember. <laughs> I, I can look it up. I don't know. This is the proof that uh, I'm a hack and a fraud. <laughs> we'll cut this bit out. I mean, uh, we, all, we all know Mitt Romney. We know who he is. Well, yeah. Uh, Utah, yeah. No. Okay. You're right. See, okay, we yeah. won't cut it out. I was right all along. <laughs> um, but his state, uh, their primary elections is an all mail-in ballot as well, and so there seems to be a particular divide between the kind of the pro-Trump Republicans and the maybe not even anti-Trump, just the less gun ho mm-hmm. supporters and it seems to be a regional thing because you're right down in the bible yeah. belt it's except for florida but florida's a oddity within itself <laughs> it's always the exception to the rule but yeah no it's definitely like geographical just like like i almost wish that this was a visual medium as well because like seeing the map is just really like it brings up a lot of questions And another thing that I find very interesting and I want to talk about is that Mm -hmm. Trump has voted by mail. Trump has voted by mail several times, um, as recently as the 2018 election, in fact. And it it just makes me wonder how, why this is getting politicized so much now. And I, because Republicans weren't always against mail-in votings. In fact, in 2012, Florida and Republican lawmakers made it easier to vote by mail. You were allowed to get a ballot shipped to an address that wasn't registered under you. So they were actually trying to make it easier to do mail-in ballots. And uh, one of the most uh, public cases of voter fraud, um, at least in recent history, was a Republican operative in North Carolina. (laughs) And again, he was Republican and he tried to do it to his favor and he got it he got caught. So I just find it interesting that this has become politicized now when it seems to be fairly bipartisan in terms of who it affects. Yeah. Um, I actually, I referenced the North Carolina case as well. I mean, yeah, (laughs) I I think as far as, as as far as that question goes, you know, it, it is surprising because, you know, the majority of Republican voters are older and they are more at risk. So, you know, that really brings up the question, you know, like why, why is the Republican party against something that would directly benefit their voter base? But I think that, (laughs) I think that if you, if you look at it a little uh, deeper and, you know, you really dig into it, Republicans 
like even especially in the state of North Carolina, have really championed other methods of voter suppression, like gerrymandering, you know, they were forced to redraw all the districts in North Carolina uh, last December because they had gerrymandered the heck out of it, you know. And I think that voter suppression is a really good tool to just sow seeds of doubt, you know, when you can make it seem like an election isn't, you know, very clean and cut and dry and like there's room for doubt, they will use it. They have in the, like they have in the past, you know, uh, the 2016 election was controversial for a whole slew of reasons that I don't really think are relevant to this discussion. But uh, voter suppression is a topic in every single election. And there's a reason for that. You know, like politicians across the board have always used voter fraud or voter suppression to contest the results of an election. Right. And uh, my, my father and I were actually having a bit of a debate today and we were wondering whether so he thinks that voter turnout will be at an all-time high i think it will actually be an all-time low because i'm worried about between the pandemic and the restrictions on all mail-in voting i think that people are actually going to get confused and kind of disenfranchised with the entire thing and i was wondering what you thought oh no i I absolutely believe it's going to be on the lower end i i hope it's not an all-time low i hope that I, I think that through, you know, a lot of good, diligent work, we can maybe bring that up, you know, from like rock bottom. But I, I think that it's just really confusing. You know, the average citizen does not know a lot about their representatives, a lot about their government, a lot about voting practices. And so far, there hasn't been a huge push to get people to recognize how big of a problem that is right now. You know, like I've seen articles here and there, but part of the reason I really wanted to do this is because I think people, uh, mail-in ballots, the big problem with it is that you can't just, you can't just, you know, go to a poll whenever you want. You have to think about this in advance. You have to request your ballot in North Carolina. You have to wait for it to come in snail mail. You have to fill it out perfectly and send it back and hope that you don't get rejected. And then, you know, you have to send in your actual ballot, but like a few weeks, before the actual day of voting. You know, it's a very slow, very drawn-out process. And if you miss even one of those deadlines, like, you're done, you're out. So, yeah, it is, it's very slow. It's very – you have to be very meticulous about it. And American voters do not like to be meticulous or informed. Right. And part of me almost feels as though – some ways I feel like we would be better off switching to an all-mail-in system and perhaps delaying the election. I – as much as I don't want the current administration to be in for any longer, I also don't want to give the excuse of hastily done um, processes to become a point of contention in the election. Like I'm sure pretty much everybody I can think of wants a surefire answer, uh, no matter what side you're on, a surefire answer to who won the election. And I would, part of me feels like if there was a way that we could delay the election that that would be a better system. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think it's important to note that no matter what, based on cut and dry rules of the Constitution, the, the current administration, if they haven't elected either the incumbent or a new, pres, uh, a new president-elect by, I, I, I don't remember what the exact date is, but by early January of next year, <laughs> then 
the current administration is allowed to stay. Luckily, we have rules built into our constitution where you have to have an election or you are out of a job, whether you win it or not. So, I mean, that's not that's not something I think people need to be worried about. And I, I think that if you have to delay the election in order to get the equipment and the training that you need, I, I think that we could we could absolutely do that. I think it might cause more confusion. You know, I, I don't think people remember the voting date as it is, but you know, I think the last thing we want is for people to get their voting dates mixed up. Yeah, but uh. yeah. And I guess kind of our, our last question I wanted to hit on was, um, what are your thoughts on all mail-in ballots becoming the norm? And I, I, I want to preface that with assuming that we get through this year, because this year is obviously somebody walked under at least five ladders and shattered 50 mirrors for 2020. But assuming we make it past this year without any meteorites, like, what do you think the nation will do moving forward? Like, what do you think the impacts of this virus will have on our mailing system? I mean, I would hope that we would keep up the work that's going on right now that pushes to make mail-in ballots more accessible you know, not just for people who are out of the country and for people who are elderly and can't get to a polling place because, you know, that is an issue. But also for college kids, I think that this is really important for them, too, because when you're in college, you're in a unique position of being able to vote either in your hometown or in your current address as at the college that you're going to, if those aren't the same, you know, addresses. And it's a whole lot more complicated to vote in your, in the town where your college is, because you have to change your address every single time you move dorms or residences at all, which, you know, happens a lot for some people. But I think college kids would just really feel a lot better about not having to potentially drive hours away or fly states away to participate in the voting process. And I think that it would really, really help bring up the voter turnout among young people big problem there definitely seems to be um there's an act that allows people deployed in foreign countries through the military to vote with an absentee ballot in their state without having to fly back um Mm -hmm. and i find it interesting that i don't see that same privilege extended to people in education and that makes me almost i don't know it, it just it seems a little not comfortable like we respect our troops and i have no problem with troops i think troops should get to vote but it seems that that same courtesy is not extended to people getting an education and theoretically those people would also be serving their country in a way and i i think that's kind of an injustice and a form of voter suppression like you were talking about yeah for sure and i really hope that this highlights like the disparities that already exist in you know voting in general because you know, in order to somehow pull this off, in order to make this election happen in a, in a way where people are accurately represented, we're going to have to recruit a whole slew of poll workers um, because, you know, the majority of them are ages 61 and older, uh, according to, you know, the Pew Research Center, and they're really at risk. And, you know, for the few people that do come out to polling centers, and more importantly, the people who process mail-in ballots, you know, they're going to have to, they're, they're, a lot of older people aren't going to show up to be poll workers this year. So, I mean, I would encourage as many young people who are eligible and healthy and have, you know, the time to be a, 
a poll worker to do so because they're going to experience a lot of employee shortages this year, but then also like equipment. It's, <laughs> it's going to cost a whole lot of money to have the kind of equipment that can sort through ballots and, you know, make sure that they're counted accurately because, you know, it's not just going to be a bunch of people in a room. It's going to also have to have some machinery to it, not only to produce the ballots, but to process them. So, yeah, I hope that we can focus on that a little more. And it brings to mind um, in the 2018 midterms uh, in Georgia, there was that one election where it seemed like there was a disproportionate amount of malfunctioning machines sent into minority areas uh, for the polls. And so, we need more people to be sort of vigilant and see what's going on because I think 2018 definitely had some interesting elections, but 2020 is going to be one for the books. It's going to be interesting to see, especially based on what we've already seen in Georgia, uh, those long lines. I, you can only put people through so much like that before they just kind of get frustrated and they decide to move on. Yeah. So. Yeah, especially with local elections coming more into play this year, because I think if there's one thing that the Black Lives Matter movement has highlighted, it's that you can't just pay attention to who you're voting to for governor or for your senator. You also have to pay attention to who you're voting for on a local level, you know, when it comes to sheriff or police commissioner or your, crap, what's the word? Uh, like district attorneys, judges, district judges, federal judges, all of those elections are just as important, if not more than federal and national elections, because, you know, they affect you on a daily basis and they affect your community on a daily basis. So people are just, I think, invested in, hopefully invested in the voting process a whole lot more than they were in years past. I remember um my town mayor, I live in uh, Walnut Cove, which is about 40 minutes north of Forsyth County. It's a little nowhere town. We have, I want to say we have about 1,300 people total who live in the area. And it was interesting because our it's a rural southern town, we kind of have, we have the white section and then there's the black section. And like, it's not official, but redlining, white flight, all that stuff kind of led to, you had the suburbans over here for the whites and you have the suburbans for the blacks. So what was really interesting to me is that um, our mayor got into talks with a fracking company and they wanted to do an assessment of the quality of gas in our soil or like in that area. And uh, there was a really big issue because the mayor decided that the area that they would allow them to build this fracking rig was slapdash in the middle of our black neighborhood. <laughs> And so here you have this minority and they didn't feel like they had the power to talk. And it's just, it's interesting to me that for sure Trump is wild and he's insane um, and gives me a lot of anxiety, but the people who are directly affecting things don't get talked about very much. And I think you bring up a valid point of we need to vote more. We need more people to run for local offices too. A lot of people get to run uncontested. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I think that, uh, that that's going to be really important this year. Yes. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. If you missed last week's episode, you should give it a listen. The Uptown Audio News team interviews several Charlotte members of the Black Lives Matter movement. If you would like to support or learn more about this movement, there will be a link in our Instagram bio at Uptown Audio. Take care. <laughs>